A treasure trove of Jewish history is sparking a craze in the Orthodox world. Wait till you hear what is behind this exclusive club and what it'll cost you to get in on the action. And Yaakov Girls Got Talent. Tablet contributor Hannah Rubin brings us into the 100% kosher certified world of high school musical production. An award-winning journalist, author, and playwright, Tuvia Tenemam is here with all the details of his brand new book, Yehudi Vitovlo. This is the Weekly Squeeze. I am your talented and humble host, Hanala Music, coming at you from the land of Israel, episode 98. Thank you so much for being here. It is a beautiful, breezy day here in the land of Israel. Another week of Israelis thwarting terrorist attacks. Baruch Hashem, I could share that David Stern, the American-Israeli Marine, um, who was shot while driving through Huara with his wife, He's he's okay. He will be okay. He did survive the attack, even though the Palestinians shot dozens of bullets into their car. Amazingly, he was able to get up, walk himself into the ambulance. People are calling him a hero. People are calling him Iron Man. I mean, he is a karate instructor. Um, and that's something that I've spoken about on this podcast, the importance of teaching Jews, boys and girls, how to defend themselves. It's extremely, extremely important, especially when um, we recognize that they're starting to pick up on the fact that they need to watch their backs. You know, this is a way to help them connect and take action and not be passive and perhaps have anxiety. So yeah, Baruch Hashem, he is feeling better. He got onto a video on Twitter and he, he obviously shared with everyone, thank you so much for your support and your prayers. And then he said, listen, plain and simply, the Israeli government has to keep the people, the residents in Judea and Samaria safe, and it has to stop. Louder for the people in the back. As far as Or Ashkar goes, he, he was shot in Dizengoff Center a week and a half ago. So he succumbed to his wounds, passed away. His organs, all of them, were donated to save the lives of six other Israelis. Just beautiful. May his memory be a blessing. Okay, let's move on to what is going on in the world that doesn't have to do with terror not much. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Okay, so I have been listening recently to The Rebbe from Joseph Telushkin as an audiobook. And uh, even though I've read it, I'm enjoying it thoroughly. There is definitely something different when you are read a book than when you read a book. Now, I love to read. I just can't physically keep my eyes open <laughs> past like 7.30. So to be read a book is just such a gift. Anyways, one of the things that I am reliving is the story of Haytavis and how the Lubavitcher Rebbe fought tooth and nail that the Friediger Rebbe's Sfarim should in fact remain in the property, in the hands of the Lubavitcher Hasidim and not given over to his nephew, who was basically stealing books from the library and selling them to collectors around the world for exorbitant amount of money. Anyway, eventually the uh, the Rebbe won the case, Lubavitch won the case, essentially, and uh, the Rebbe bought the books back for much, much more. And that is why this story from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency really intrigued me. Inside the auction house, driving the rare book craze in the Orthodox world. So Gnezim is an auction house. Uh, I guess the word is from Geniza. I'm going to venture. Um, so they specialize in Jewish historical artifacts and collectibles, giving people all around the world the chance to own a piece of Jewish history which includes items like first edition Sfarim, letters by prominent rabbis and rebbes, original Torah manuscripts, and much, much more. And apparently, everybody besides me and you are, are in on this. 
So let, let's let's dig a little deeper. What is going on? Why are Orthodox Jews spending thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of dollars on books that nobody's ever going to read? <laughs> let's not get ourselves. But but one second before we even go there, let's talk about art collections. Bichlal, like what are the most valuable types of collections in the world? Because I love collecting. I had erasers when I was a kid on the windowsill in my room. All those little cute erasers that had that very distinct 80s smell. I was obsessed with erasers and I had some very cute ones. But that wasn't a serious collection. Let me tell you about a serious collection. My mother had a neighbor who will go unnamed. If you if you know who they are, you know what I'm talking about. And they collected porcelain dolls. I'm talking about the ones in the commercials that used to get with a certificate of authenticity by calling this number now, but hurry because baby Michael is issued an exclusive edition and once closed, no more will ever be made like this exceptional doll in this series. Hurry up. Michael could be yours for the issue price of $63 payable in three monthly installments of $21, which in those days was like $300. So this family had all the dolls. All the dolls, every single new doll that came out, whether it was in a catalog, in a magazine, or on a commercial, ended up on the shelf on top of this baby girl's crib. And I would walk into the room and just be like, wow, this is incredible. But of course, that wasn't the only collection they had. They also collected Disney figurines. So this family, they were like this super happy family that had year passes to Disney World and went six times a year. And everybody was wearing matching sweatshirts and Disney ears. And the parents were holding hands and everybody was having a good time. Almost like my family, except nothing at all. Um, So yeah, they would go to Disney and collect these little Disney figurines until they had like a couple hundred of them. Like I kid you not, tons of them. It was like, it's a small world after all in this family's living room. So that was a super cool collection. And then they had a salt and pepper holder collection. What are they called? Salt and pepper shaker collection. And that is the cutest thing ever. I mean, just imagine the cutest salt and pepper shakers you've ever seen all in one Florida kitchen. Incredible. I actually wanted to start a salt and pepper collection. I saw in Mesha RM these salt and pepper shakers that were chalas and you put them together and it looks like a loaf. And I didn't buy them, so I don't have a collection. <laughs> anyway, back before one more thing before we get to the actual story. The coolest collection I actually have ever seen was by Clary Wiggs. She has a dreidel collection, and it is wild. Could you imagine dreidels from all around the world? And of course, they're not just dreidels. They're dreidels that are also menorahs and also a, a chauffeur. So that was super, super cool. But let's get back to Ganesim. Now, it seems to me... From what I understand, there are people spending a lot of money on books that are worth very little. So one of the uh, bookstore owners that was interviewed for this JTA article says that in 2021, there was a sale of a, a Pesach Haggadah printed in the 1920s in Vienna. Okay, very nice book. It also happens to be very common. They sold it at the Gnesim auction for $5,500. And this guy Mizrahi, who has a bookstore in Brooklyn, says, I sell them for a hundred bucks. It just, it's, okay, so that's really what triggered this story. Why are people spending a ton of money on things that are not even that expensive? So let's break it down. What was the most expensive book sold at this Gnesim auction? The Shulchan Aruch, $620,000 last September, a 16th century first edition. Another very expensive book, a 
copy of Noam Ali Melech, um, printed in 1788, $1.4 million. Insanity. What's going on here? I don't know what's going on here. Apparently, Ganesim has come on like a freight train into the world of Jewish auctions, and the prices are through the roof. In the first auction in 2017, they sold 1,900 books, manuscripts, and documents for a $26 million commission, $12 million above starting prices. That is absurd. That is extremely absurd, considering people are still complaining about tuition. What is going on? Why would people spend all this money? Well, think about it. We don't go to Vegas. We don't have crazy vacations. Um, We keep kosher. So what better way to splurge and to show off than to buy rare books, to buy Judaica? Like, think about that. In the Hasidic community, you are the coolest kid in the block if you have a collection of ancient books that are really expensive. It's not like people are going to have car collections. It's not like people are going to be wearing one expensive watch after the other. And the fact of the matter is, apparently, the Hasidic world has grown wealthier over the last decade or two. And Hasidim, well, they like luxury products and services. And that's fine. We have beautiful restaurants. We have high-end kosher wine, liquors, and all that jazz. If I'm not mistaken, I saw a Mishloach Manos in Ami magazine for $999 a spare rib, pretty much, on a wooden board for $999. So somebody is spending that kind of money. I mean, if your shul doesn't have sushi at the Kiddush, is it even a Kiddush? And people are going to Dubai for for Shavuos. So the fact of the matter is there are a lot of people in our communities that have a ton of money and they are spending it on super cool books. Let's go on the website and see what is for sale. All right, I'm looking at this website for the first time. Afi Komen Auction, that's cute. February 26, 2023. Let's look at what was sold. Lot number one, a Talmud Yerushalmi for $47,000. What? Say what? Okay, let me just look a little closer. Venice, printed in 1527. Um, the Mishnayis of each parak are printed with the commentary of the Rambam, followed by the Talmud Yerushalmi for that parak. 14 leaves, good condition. This is the second edition of the Bomberg's Venetian printing of the Talmud. The last page features an introduction by Rabbi Yosef ben Al-Fual, who translated the Rambam's commentary on Mishnah Seder Moed. Ba-ba-ba, ba-ba-ba. And there's like a whole bunch more information. Um, But, you know, you can have it because it was sold for $47,000, start price of twenty grand. What else do we have here? Maseches Purim, twelve grand. A year-round machser, whatever that is, twelve grand, twelve thousand four hundred dollars. Haggadah with commentary, first edition, Venice, fifteen eighty-three, by Harav Eliezer Ashkenazi, eleven thousand dollars. It was sold for an extremely rare Haggadah, sixty-two thousand dollars. I'd be scared to use that, use that, because somebody is going to spill wine on your sixty-two thousand dollar Haggadah. Handwritten essay by the Admar Rabbiol of Satmer can be yours for forty-four thousand dollars. The matzah machine controversy. The machine matzah controversy. <laughs> that sounded like the marvelous Midos machine. The marvelous matzah Midos machine. Um, $155,000. Base Yosef Orachim first edition Venice 1550. Talk about impressing your husson. <laughs> Crazy. It's really pretty impressive. Then you can go onto their website, see all their previous auctions. Just going to check out another one real quick. Lots of documents. Rare signature of renowned miracle worker, the Ribnature Rebek Suba document, $29,000. I think that might still be for sale. Oh no, it says sold. Sorry. Uh, ba, ba, ba. 
just this is really cool. The Holy Divrechaim signed letter of blessing from Rabbi sixty three thousand dollars. Somebody is buying this stuff. Yeah, and and they've got to be hiding those bags just like you hide your bags when you come home from shopping and you bought something in the thrift shop slash antique store. And because it's vintage, you had to have it. So what does it make a difference? Does it make a difference that a woman sometimes spends thousands of dollars on a handbag or a pair of shoes? Not if her husband's buying a piece of paper for 60 grand. <laughs> I know Chastor all mean to belittle the practice of collecting holy works and svarim, but you know, it's hard. It's not so relatable. That's all I'm saying. It's not so relatable. By the way, I did a quick Google, like what are the most expensive collections in the world? These are our collections estimated to be worth $1 billion each. And most of them belong to Jews, Ezra and David Nachum. Okay, they are Syrian-born Jewish brothers who have over a billion dollars worth of art, 3.3 to be precise. David Geffen, apparently he has a $2.3 billion art collection. Uh, Ellie Broad, I don't know if he's Jewish, but he sounds Jewish. Steve Cohen, he's definitely Jewish. And he and his wife, Alex, have a collection that is worth over a billion dollars. That's just their collection. That is stuff that they will never use. It's crazy. This actually reminds me of a song I once wrote called Diamonds and Fish about a man who hears about an island. And he hears that in this faraway land, there are going to be diamonds all over the place. All you have to do is literally bend down, scoop them up, and put them in your pockets. So he takes a long and difficult journey across the sea to this wondrous land. And lo and behold, everything they said was true. And there's diamonds all over the place, glittering gems, as many as the sand. And he's so excited. He's so busy filling his pockets, he doesn't even notice that a bunch of kids are watching him. That night, he goes to dinner. He orders the best food in the most expensive restaurant and hands the waiter a diamond that says, keep the change. (laughs) Um, He ended up washing dishes all night to pay for his meal when he realized that all of these diamonds were worth nothing on this island. The only thing that you can use to buy something was fish, actual fish. And yeah, people used to collect fish. They had warehouses of stinky fish and the smell came out of their wallets and out of their purses and out of their safes and out of the bank. But whatever, you know, you do what you got to do. So he becomes the richest guy in town. He literally takes over the entire section of the downtown of this island. (laughs) And he has tons of thousands of stinky, rancid fish. He sends a telegraph to his family. I am rich. We will never need anything in our lives again. Prepare for my homecoming. And he loaded up his fortune, all the fish, onto the boats. And as you can imagine, his wife was not happy. So, yeah, luckily his wife did let him back into the house. And later that day, as he was undressing for bed, one tiny little diamond fell out of his pocket. And lo and behold, he was able to provide for his family for the rest of their lives. What is the nimshal? Well, the nimshal is that the neshama comes down, hears of this wondrous land where you can do as many mitzvahs as you want, 24 hours a day. You can do mitzvahs nonstop. And the neshama is so excited and they come, and he comes down and diamonds litter the streets, he's told. Wherever you turn, you have an opportunity to do a mitzvah. All you have to do is bend down and and fill your pockets. But we get distracted and we forget and we start to believe that just because everyone else says so, we need to surround ourselves with smelly fish. The good news is that no neshama could come down to this earth without accidentally picking up at least one or two mitzvahs along the way. So the moral of the story is if you got the money, I can't think of anything better to spend it on 
than tuition. I mean, then expensive svarm. <laughs> this week's episode of the Weekly Squeeze has been brought to you by Mayor Panim. Pesach is around the corner, and many, many families in the Holy Land do not have enough money to put food on the table. And that's where Mayor Panim comes in. They are committed to raising $750,000 in the next month so they can cover their budget and be able to provide the pantry staples that every Israeli family needs, especially around this time of year when we just eat so much food. So Mayor Panim is here to the rescue. Together with your donations, they are going to be delivering hundreds and hundreds of food boxes all around this country that are going to include bread and matzah, milk and eggs, fruits and vegetables, chicken and fish, and more. And no family this year will go hungry. Every family will feel loved and included in our nation, a nation that cares for one another. So this Passover, join Mayor Panim in redeeming Israel's needy by providing them with life-saving monthly grocery packages. The link is in my show notes. You could sponsor a family for $180 a month or just give what you can. Every single donation is appreciated. Mayor Panim has been featured in United with Israel, JNS, The Watchman, Jamie Geller, Times of Israel. I've worked with them for a while now. Absolutely legit. So give Israel's needy a taste of freedom this Passover. And on behalf of the Weekly Squeeze, make a donation today. All right, you guys know that I read a lot of news. I take in a lot of content, and most of it is not really relevant to my life, honestly. It's a lot. There's a lot of politics. There are a lot of things I don't know, apparently. The more I read, the more I learn, the more I explore, the more I realize I know not too much or not enough. Anyways, so it's always fun to come across a newspaper article or a blog post or a Substack, whatever they're calling them. A Substack, um, what are Substacks? A Substack, <laughs> straight up, or a Substack that appeals to me on every level. And this article that I'm about to talk to you about appealed to me on every single level. Now, not only did it appeal to me, I knew exactly what she was talking about. Like I could have written this if I was as good of a writer as Hannah Rubin is. She's an amazing writer. So we're gonna read this article together. I emailed her, asked her if she could come to the podcast. She said she's busy. And I was like, why do people have lives? Like, why am I the only one always available? But people have lives. And she wasn't available to come on the show. But she gave me her blessing to go through the article with you and share my perspective as somebody who has experienced the joy, the sheer hysteria that is a Beis Yaakov or Beis Rivka production. So here we go. Orthodox High School Musical by Hannah Rubin in the Tablet Magazine. She starts off by describing the... Bass Yaakov play in Miami. And I was like, uh, uh, hello, I worked on the Bass Yaakov play in Miami a hundred times in a row. I did their music forever. Like I did their music back before I was married um, and up until I left to Israel. So Bass Yaakov, as it turns out, put on the Magic Yamaka this past year. And I was actually thrilled. I'm like, really? That's a great play. I love that. There's so many reasons why I love that. And she goes into this entire essay about how high school productions serve one purpose, to teach the girls that they need to believe in their God-given strengths. And I was like, yes, I'm going to love this article. And she goes on to describe so beautifully, like, listen to this. She describes their collaborative feats of line perfecting, harmony composing, dance devising, scenery painting, costume sewing, and sleep sacrificing, if that is not a high school production. But let's get into it, because I have some issues with high school productions. And I'm not holding back. <laughs> All right, here we go. So 
The question is, where did this phenomena come from that we have a huge production once a year in a big theater, a production that's girls only, sneeze, and once in a while, controversial? We can talk about that too. So she goes on to describe the history of Bisyakov and where this interest in the arts came from originally. So we know that Bisyakov starts with Sarah Schneerer in 1883. She was born in Krakow, a dressmaker, and she created Bisyakov. She created the idea of formalized religious instruction so that Jewish girls could learn about their tradition. They could have proper religious schooling. Um, They won't become rabbis, but every single Jewish girl should have a religious schooling. And she made it happen. And by the time she passed away in 1935, there were 200 Bezyakovs in Poland. 200. That's crazy. And I'm actually looking at a picture that's included in this article. And you see here a black and white photo. Bezyakov students in uh, Bursa's Poland perform in a play called Joseph and His Brothers circa 1934. And I'm looking at a bunch of apparently Bezyakov girls dressed in costumes, old-fashioned, hand-sewn, beautiful costumes. But back to the original question, where did this concept come from that Bezyakov girls should be performing? Like, it's kind of a guyish thing, you know? That's right. Especially because they were trying to be the counter-movement to the reform movement, and the reform movement was always secular. So where did this come from? Well, it turns out the creed of Bezyakov is actually Taira im Derecharetz. That is the official creed of the Bezyakov uh, Hashkafa, the principled fusion of Taira with boundaried modernity. Boundaried. And that's why today in 2023, the girls are still wearing big fat potato sack, half skirt pants for their dances. But more about that later. So she goes on to explain, um, Hannah, in this beautiful article, that staging plays was a major part of the Besyakov experience from the early days. Also, a terrific marketing tool. Now, remember, there were no cell phones. There were no fax machines. There was no email. If you wanted to get people's attention, you had to have them come out and enjoy something. So people in the village and the small towns would actually come out, even the not religious girls, the Yiddish newspapers were reporting about these plays. So word about a Jewish school that taught Jewish girls how to grow up and be religious, but still participate in the arts with the limitations and prohibitions of Kol Isha. Well, that was just, it was brilliant. It was a phenomena. And Sarah Schneer wrote many of the scripts herself. That is actually wild, if you think about it. She she was writing it by hand. She, they were, you, you guys, life was so simple and so sincere. You couldn't rush things. Things were planned. Things had a purpose. And she was intent on making sure that the school plays were perfect and beautiful and that they always happen. Now, you're probably wondering... But one second, Besyakov doesn't have one central headquarters. There's no one big office. They, they have hundreds of schools that are yeshivish, Ashkenazi, Mizrahi, and they're all Besyakov students. My daughter goes to essentially a Besyakov, but it's not called Besyakov. So what is under this Besyakov umbrella? Well, according to Leslie Ginsberg, a friend of mine that I know for many, many years, a very talented, brilliant woman who is extremely active in, who always was very active in the Jewish arts Um, She's a scholar of Orthodox girls' education in America. I once spoke to her on this subject. I should have her on the show. So she says, listen, Besyakov essentially is a right-wing Orthodox demographic. Um, It is very diverse. 
She says that you could divide Beis Yaakov into three groups, right-wing, moderate, and community schools. Uh, I don't know exactly the differences, but I'll trust Leslie on that. Um, Beis Yaakov in Miami was, I can go, my friends went, my sisters went, my cousins went. Um, a very from wonderful, terrific school. I'm looking at another super cute picture. Beis Yaakov students um, in Poland perform a perm play 1938, and they're all dressed as sailors, and they have fake beards on and crowns. This is so sweet. I love that so much. Um, this is just such a great article. I was, I'm so grateful that, that, that it was written because this is something that is part of what I'm doing. This is something that is linked into my career because of the fact that I went to a school where we had a production and we were encouraged to sing and I had solos and I was respected for my talent. I had confidence to continue to use my voice all these years. And because of that, I am where I am today in front of this mic. So it all comes full circle. This article is so excellent. All right, let's talk about the actual productions because that's where my opinions come in. So yes, Beisakov plays, Beisakov plays can be absolutely amazing. I've worked on them in big, beautiful theaters. They spend a ton of money in it. There's a ton of rehearsals. I, I don't know when the girls are learning. I keep thinking to myself, school literally just started and every single night you guys are in the theater till 11 o'clock. So, and then I, 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 I mean, I get it. I know why they're putting on the production, but sometimes you have to wonder why is there so much focus and money and manpower put into these shows that, that just take over the girls' lives. Now we know the reason, but let's talk about the actual production. By the way, some of these are my own words. Hannah, the, the author here, is definitely more eloquent and articulate than I am. So anything that sounds just a little bit too ghetto, <laughs> that's just me. All right. So she describes here, she obviously spent time at these rehearsals while she was rehearsing. I don't know who Hannah is. I don't know if she went to Beziakov, but she spent time watching the whole magical, messy experience, both in Beziakov, Miami, and in Beziakov, New York, which is fascinating to me because they put on similar plays, but they are very different. And there's what to garner and learn from both of them. Um, she said that she spoke to Zlata Press, the high school principal in Benos Lea, Prospect Park Yeshiva in Brooklyn, and she said the production is, it just offers tremendous value. There's an influx of creativity and bonding. That is true. She also spoke to Rachi Bergowitz, the principal of Chaviva High School in Cleveland, and she said that the production gives girls an opportunity to step up and lead. So it's not just I practiced it, but I created it and worked through the social dynamics. Of course, I tell my kids all the time, you're not going to remember what you learned in school. You're going to remember how to problem solve. You're going to remember how to cope. You remember how to deal. And besides, your mother doesn't want any kids here between nine and four. So you might as well go somewhere where your friends are. So the thing that I really liked about this article, so many things, was this point she made. She said, listen, <laughs> a traditional theater critic might recoil at these plays, not least because good theater generally does not tell you what to think. Beisiakov plays unbashedly do just that. Now, if you've never been to a Beisiakov play or a Beisrivka play, you will probably have no idea what's going on. So there's some sort of story that takes place in some period in Jewish history. We don't know exactly where, when. Is it the Inquisition? I don't know. Honestly, I have never loved any of these plays. I, I find the plots to be cliched. 
they're always revolving around the same themes, like a family holding onto their Masora, and there's Nazis, and there's Kazakhs, and then there's somebody knocking on the door. I don't know. It's just very predictable, stereotyped. There's a, a tough father and a loving mother, and then the teenager's rebellious, and, and there's the villain that has the best role, and everybody's obsessed with that particular character because they can, you know, be different and be harsh and rough. I don't know. There's just, uh, and, the, and and there's even like basic stereotypes that are literally added for comic relief. I, I, I mean, I'm not politically correct. Don't get me wrong. But in a world where you can't sneeze without offending someone, some of it's, you know, a little cringy. On top of it, all the dances are the same. They're all the nightmare conflict dances where everybody's wearing black and white and everybody's that the motions are dramatic and overly expressive and, and all arms and feet, all arms and feet, because you can't move anything else. So it's just legs moving up and moving down and, and it's just there's not enough to connect with. And then the play just goes on and on and on. They're like, okay, let's have a sailor dance on the boat to America or a beggar dance in, in the marketplace. There's always a scary dance and there's always dancing Nazis and the choreography is always the same. And it's just like every year, the same thing over and over with the same music. It's like the Pirates of the Caribbean or Yanni. Now, I have worked on plays. I have tried to encourage the girls to try new things. But honestly, there is so much time spent on working through the soundtracks so that every single knock and click and tap and overdub and dream sequence should be pre-recorded, and the girls have to come sing. Honestly, let the girls sing it live. I don't understand why the girls can't sing live. I'm sitting here recording you for 14 hours and then editing vocals so that you guys sound like a professional choir. Just go rehearse. Just perform it live. And and that brings me to the final issue with Bisakov Plays. You know, we don't have the talent pool that meets the requirements of, of musical theater. Musical theater is grueling. On top of it, we are determined to make sure that every single kid in the school, even if they're not interested, is involved in the play. Everyone has to be in a choir. Everyone has to be in a dance or in drama. So we have extra choirs and extra dances. And the play goes on for 14 hours. And on top of it, we can't write a script that's even remotely interesting, provocative. It's drama. It's theater. It's entertainment. It's supposed to intrigue and capture and, and, and provoke. But you can't do that because it has to be bland and uninteresting when you are in a religious school. Now, I loved working with the girls in production, and it was such a nice experience, and there were some terrific singers and dancers and so on and so forth. But, yeah, that's my opinion on Beysiakov and Beysrifka plays. By the way, this is not directed to any specific school. I went to many schools and had many experiences in production. I'm talking about camps. I'm talking about Chabad schools and, and modern schools, all the schools, all the schools. Obviously, I've seen some terrific plays, and like Libby mentioned back uh, two episodes ago, the production that they put on in New York this week was just, from from what she described, insanely amazing. But that's not happening every single year in Beysiakov. Instead, we are cramming in hundreds of bubbies and moms and tichels into the theater. Everyone's holding balloons and bouquets. And the girls are floating around with their costumes, shining with their thick stage makeup. And then, and this is in Hannah's words, I'm going to read it, she wrote so beautifully. When the lights dim and the curtains part and the house stills, there they are, earnest, solemn, beaming, not quite children, not quite grown-ups, braces flashing, glasses glinting, the vulnerabilities of teenagehood, the pimples and pounds, softened by spotlights and forgiving costumes. They're having the time of their lives, the schoolgirl ensemble in plaid jumpers and French braids, 
wheeling around in stocking feet, the actress striding on stage, the giddy dancers in ballet buns and kaleidoscopic jumpsuits. Summer soulful, choir girls, ethereal in long skirts and shimmering neck cuffs, sway prayer-like. A soloist stands like a supplicant in a circle of light, luminous face furrowed. But most charming, at least to this viewer, was the humanist poking through, the finger-fiddling actress, the dancer mouthing, I messed up, the props committee scuttling across the stage during a blackout, the director facing her performers with a sign reading, smile. Because while they strive to impress, Basakov schools never purport to be Broadway. Their goals supersede the productions themselves, which shows when the entire Basakov Miami crowds on stage for finale. Flush with victory, they sing the song's theme song, waving their hands and whooping. Perhaps the magic Amica was not entirely devoid of magic after all. All right, speaking of magic, my next guest is just one of those guys that captivates people's attention. His number one book, Catch the Jew, has been translated in over a dozen languages. His books have garnered critical acclaim and controversy for their frank, often unapologetic exploration of politics, religion, and society. Well, basically, Tufi is not like other artists. He's actually a German journalist who grew up in Bnei Brak. <laughs> and what he does is he takes on a persona and talks to people around the world about anti-Semitism. So in Germany, he becomes Tuvia from Jordan, and they start talking to him about how much they hate Jews. And it turns out that Germans still really, really hate Jews. There's a ton of anti-Semitism. And if you read Tuvia's book, I Sleep in Hitler's Room, well, you will get a up-close-and-personal view of Germans talking without any reservation, thinking that Toby is just a German journalist like them. And then he did the same thing in America, and then he did the same thing in London. And then, well, I'm not going to tell you and then, because that we will save for our interview. His sixth book is the number one selling book in Israel as of today. So that's pretty cool. Tuvia Tenenbaum. He is just one of a kind, a journalist, a dramatist, the founder of the Jewish Theater of New York. He has a doctorate in English literature at St. John's University. He has his bachelor's in mathematics and computer science. I think that's what BS stands for. <laughs> BS in mathematics and computer science at Turo. And he has Micha. He studied Christianity and Islam in Israel and New York, as well as journalism, acting, theater, and finance. In 2003, Germany's most prestigious newspaper, Der Zeit, named him one of the best minds in America. His books are available through Geffen Publishing House. To know him is to love him. Without further ado, Tuvia Tenemalm. But first, this week's episode has been brought to you by Tovito. Tovito is the number one downloaded children's entertainment app in the world because all the kids, all the kids just know how much fun it is when their mother says, sure, you can use the iPad. Sure, you can watch on the laptop. Sure, you can have my phone. Now, if you're telling yourself, you know what? YouTube's free. TV's free. Well, you are going to pay the price one way or the other. When your kid starts acting out, because they are watching too much violence or starts repeating things that no Jewish kid should be talking about. And that's what Tovito's for. Tovito is great kosher content. Hours and hours of cartoons, puppet shows, animations, educational videos, music videos, bedtime videos, you name it. Tovito has it. And your kids are going to love it because my kids love it and I created some of that content. So I can tell you that it is high quality, very entertaining, educational, and fun. Even when, yes, you listen to it over and over. But don't worry, you'll have plenty to watch. Subscribe to Tovito. Head over to my show notes. Click on the link, tovito.com. Use the promo code SQUEEZE10 at checkout for 10% off. And enjoy the best kosher content for your family. Tovito.com. And now, my conversation with Tuvia Tenenbaum. 
Two of you, Tanemam, welcome to the Weekly Squeeze. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Hanalia, so much for having me. Can you see me? I can see you. Looking great. The man, the myth, the legend. Thank you. I don't want to talk about your sixth book yet, okay? I want the listeners to appreciate the subject or the subjects of it after we talk about who you are and what you write about. Okay. We're going to assume that a portion of my audience, my listeners, have never read your books, and some perhaps have. I actually came across your book, just a quick story. I moved to Israel five years ago, and I was in my storage room recently, and I brought up a box of books that we hadn't unpacked from our Aliyah. And your book, Catch the Jew, was on top of the pile. So I read it. And now that I'm living here five years, it just I read it in a whole new light. It was phenomenal. And yes, since then, I've caught up on, yeah, I've caught up on all your books. Recently, I was in Geffen Publishing House in Jerusalem, and they gave me your The Taming of the Jew, which I loved. And I want to talk about all of it. But first, <laughs> okay. are you ready? <laughs> I am ready. If you are ready, I'm Born am. ready. Yeah. Okay. A wise man once said... Judaism is not kogel or gefilte fish. Judaism is not hummus or falafel. Judaism is not a flag. Judaism is the holy books, the ancient books written by Jews, starting with the Tanakh. You got to read it, all of it, if you want to know what Judaism is. But you are not a man of the book, and you're honest and open about that always. So let's start with that. Can you tell me about your Jewish education and your upbringing and what went wrong? <laughs> <laughs> what went wrong? I don't know if it went wrong. But uh, yeah, I was born in Israel uh, in, a, in the city called Bnei Brak or Boiberik to the people from one outside of it. It's a Haredi city. There I was born on my mother's side. Uh, she's from Romania. My father's side is from Poland. Both sides come from families of rabbis. Uh, my great, my Saba Rabba, great, great, great father was the Radzine Rebbe. My father was a Shishibe. So I got uh, both worlds, the world of the Hasidic world, because of the family. And I was also raised in what you call Chazonishnikes. I don't know what you know that is. The Misnagdish, Litvish. Okay. So not Lubavitch. Not Lubavitch. I'm Lubavitch. You're Lubavitch. Okay, so that's where I grew up. I learned in yeshivas, and then I, uh, I moved to the Hesder. When I grew up a little bit older, I had too many questions. The rabbis didn't have answers. So I moved to the, from the old Orthodox to the Orthodox, but I grew up also in Bnei and also in Jerusalem, in Nashorim. And then I uh, went to the army in Hesder Yeshiva, then I left Israel. I went to the United States where I studied for many, many years in different universities, different kind of studies, different disciplines. I just wanted to fill in everything I didn't know before. You just left home and your mother was fine with that? I mean, that, that must have been very traumatic for your siblings and for your parents, especially back in the day. Yeah, back in the day. I wanted to go to university. I registered to Barilano University. And my mother, the Holocaust survivor, heard that I'm going to university she felt it a shame. She started crying. How could it be that her son would go to university? I mean, what has she seen that her son, Tuvia, goes to university studying secular studies? So I didn't want to have any of it. And I said, okay, I'm leaving. I'll go somewhere else. I go abroad and I'll study abroad. I bought a ticket and I had $400 to my name, cash, and I flew to the United States. And that's what it is. 
And that was the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning. Yeah, and that was the beginning <laughs> of the beginning of a new end or the beginning of something else. I don't know. I started universities and I, I founded a theater company called the Jewish Theater of New York. We put on all kinds of plays, basically about Jewish uh, issues, Jewish history, Jewish issues, whatever it is, it's all in English. And some of the shows went to many other, other, other countries, for example, Germany, Poland, Hungary, Austria. And then I started writing for a newspaper in Germany called The Zeit. It's like the New York Times of Germany, which I'm still writing for. When you came to Germany, you spoke German? When I came to Germany, I did not speak German. When I came to America, I didn't speak English. But I had to study Right, that. and now you're fluent in both. I'm fluent. I'm not fluent, I'm not fluent in anything. Well, my, my books are in nine languages so far. What language do you write your books in? I write in English. Can you believe, if you listen to my accent, you wouldn't think so. But yeah, I write in English because my education, other, other than the Jewish education, you know, the university education was only in, uh, in New York. So I got used to writing English. Well, university wasn't, was taboo in Chabad also. The Rebbe did not encourage the Bachrim. If anything, the Rebbe was against university. So I understand that that was a conflict of interests with your community. And you had the courage to do your own thing, which a lot of people didn't. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, um, it takes a certain amount of strength to walk away from something you're familiar with and out into the world. And you've been walking and canvassing the world ever since. You canvassed Israel, Germany, America, and Britain and wrote about them, wrote about your experiences, discovering anti-Semitism thriving in all its lovely forms. I was saddened at the end of The Taming of the Jew when you wrote that you're leaving Britain and you're never coming back. That's how disturbed you were. I think that was the first time you said that in all your books. Yeah, I found the anti-Semitism I found in Britain was shocking. More in Germany, more than any other places. More than in the Arab world. I mean, it was like anti-Semitism in its purest form. We have no idea that everywhere you go, people talk about Israel. It's like, and that was, of course, the four states of, of, of the United Kingdom, you know, the UK, not just Ireland, you know. And this was like Northern Ireland, it's not different than Ireland. You know, it's basically the same nation, just different um, nationalities, so to speak, different passport, but it's the same nation. Um, they just cannot stand Jews. Wherever you go, they take you. They talk, they talk to you about the the impossible Jews. I mean, when you go on the streets and you ask people, be it in the UK, be it in Ireland, if they want to change anything in the world, especially in the UK, you know, the time of Brexit, you expect people to talk about Brexit. You know, there was the final days before Brexit was uh, approved, whatever, and and but the people don't talk about Brexit. You ask students, 20-year-olds, you know, and I'm presenting myself as a German journalist and I come with a camera and I ask this stupid question, you know, what would you like to change in the world? And the answers come like, free Palestine. Free Palestine. Not hungers, not earthquakes. Not hunger, not anything else. None of their book. None of their book. And the artists in Ireland, wherever you go, the artists are like, all the time, advertise, you know, put like, Big kind of Pashkivili you call it in Israel, you know, Kol Kore. Pashkivili, yeah. Yeah. Anti-Israel, anti-Jewish. And it was a frightening experience. For example, one of the things that we put in the video, we went to a Northern Ireland, went to a pub, and you see people, normal British people, British citizens, you know, and they sit in the pub, 
early in the day, I mean, late, it's like four o'clock in the afternoon, something like that. Everybody was still sober, so to speak. And the people said there in ears next to me sitting a guy with a bracelet on the bracelet says Palestine. I mean, it's like, what do you care about Palestine? And they tell me. Mm. And they can't even spot it on a map. No, if I put, if I put it on, a, on an iPhone, I say spot it on the map, they don't even know. One time I tried, I went, you know, it's like, I tried more than one time, but one time I put it in a video, I tried going on the streets, asking a young man, you know, a student, and I come over to him and I say, Hello, my name is Ahmad. I am from Palestine. Would you like to talk to somebody? Tell me a little bit about Palestine. Yeah, cool. It, it doesn't even appear to him that they don't look like the exact Palestinian. So you don't know what Palestine is. You don't know what Palestine The only things you know is that the other side are Jews, and that's enough. It's like from Chaucer, you know, Canterbury Tales, you know? It's like the culture. The Jew is a killer. The Jew is a bloodthirsty person or whatever, animal. And you have to be careful of him. So you don't know what the Jew is, but they ate the Jews. It was frightening to see that everywhere you go, almost everywhere, it's Palestine, Palestine, Palestine. And when I met the people who are like, you know, all these organizations, NGOs, solidarity with Palestine and all of those kind of things, all kinds of these NGOs, I, I find out it's not, they are not Palestinians. They are not even Arabs. They are not Muslims. They are British people, white folks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is. It's auto set. It, it's a very comprehensive anti-Semitism that is malignant and metastasizing across the world. Now, I have a fascination with the subject as of late. Actually, when I was at Geffen, I picked up um, a brief history of anti-Semitism. Did you see that book? No. By Israel Beton. No. I think I had it here somewhere. What a book. Absolutely incredible. He basically gives a very thorough uh, uh, explanation what anti-Semitism is. And it's basically one big conspiracy theory. And I always laugh and say, you know, for for all the myths and all the fantasies that the non-Jews have about the Jews, there's very little evidence, if not none, of the actual truth. But still, we always end up the villains. If you talk about books, there was a wonderful book that was written quite a few years ago. It's called Christian Anti-Semitism. It was written by a professor of uh, Christian studies, whatever, Bible professor, whatever, Professor Nichols, I think. And, and it's an amazing book. It's a, it's a heavy book, over 500, 600 pages or something like that. And it talks about the origin of anti-Semitism. And it proves it point by point. This is written by a Christian. And it comes to the conclusion that, you know, Christianity, Christianity minus anti-Semitism is Judaism. I mean, it's like amazing. Uh, but when you see the Christianity, or the, the Christianity, I'm mean, not here to, to fight Christianity. God forbid, it's not my job, and it's not, I'm not a rabbi or whatever it is. But when you read the New Testament, and you can see it right there, when Jesus talks to his brothers, the Jews, and he tells them, I come to you and speaking in the name of my father, father in heaven. And you, your father is the devil. At the time, it was two Jews talking to each other. So it was not exactly anti-Semitism. But we developed into Christianity, and with the fact that the Jews did not follow Christianity, and it became like two groups. You know, Jesus and his disciples are Christians, and then they were Jews. So for me, we learn that this is, this is a religious book. This is the basic Christianity. That the Christian's father in heaven, you know, father, you know is the father in heaven is God, and the Jew's father is the devil. That's what it is. When Jesus first comes to Jerusalem, 
as it is retold, you know, or as it's told in the New Testament, what does he see? He sees money changers, you know. So that's what Jews are. That's why Jews in Christian country could dilute money. Of course, but the reason that Jews were money lenders is because they were barred from owning land, participating in trade. So many of them became merchants and money lenders. So what's that to do with today? No, no, no. It started like that. It started like that. Then it became part, okay. of, part of the culture, part of the Christian culture. You know, these are the Jews. These are not the Jews. You know, that's what it is. This is the part of the culture. Now, for example, Germany, you know, most Germans, you can say, are atheists. But the thing from the cultures that they took from before, from the parents and grandparents, or whatever it is, is that these are the Jews. It's part of the culture. It's like an unsecular Jew that goes to Schenken in Tel Aviv on, on Shabbat morning to eat a filter fish. I mean, or to eat a kugel. Why does a kugel talk to him once he gets filter fish? You're saying it's, it's out become. of habit? It's out of habit, yeah. It's, it culture repeats itself. You know, there are things that we accept from generation of the generations. It becomes like the DNA of culture. I know, but we also live in a world where everybody is constantly reiterating and regurgitating the importance of social justice and, and defending racism and defending sexism and homophobia. And for some reason, anti-Semitism is not included. The people who spread the ideas anti-racist and anti-that and anti-that are themselves anti-Semitic. So you are not going to spread anything against anti-Semitism. All the people you see is like, I mean, I got to know so many NGOs. You're saying the biggest social justice warriors are the biggest yeah, anti-Semites, yeah. and that you did prove yeah. throughout your books. Right, correct. That's yeah. But I want to I wanna challenge you because you you wrote or you, you said somewhere that the white ones hate the Jews the most. And we should forget it. We should forget about the Muslims. Go after the source. And the culture of the white men is terrifying and horribly steeped in hatred of Jews. And we should forget about the Muslim problem. Now I'm living just, in Israel. Just, just a second. Just a second. I'm not talking about the white ones. I'm talking about the Christian world. The ones who come from the Christian world in America today, the black communities, for example, is more anti-Semitic than the white community. Why? This is all kinds of stories and reasons behind. Which white ones are you talking about? What, what I'm what I'm what I'm saying. What I'm talking about. What I said is that the ones who come from the European culture, basically the Christian culture, are more anti-Semitic than the one the Muslims. And the reason is very simple. The reason is very simple. Not the white person, the European culture. And the reason is very simple. As I explained to you before, the origin of it is religious. In the religious part, the enemy of God was the Jew only. In Islam, the, the infidels, and when Islam talks against Jews, it doesn't single out Jews. It puts the Jews and the Christians in the same place. So the dummies. Exactly. You know, so it was never just the Jews. That's a huge difference, and you can see it in the culture. The Arab, the, the Muslim world yet did not create the, the, the Kishinev programs or the Holocaust or whatever it is, crematoriums to, to burn Jews alive. This has not come from the Muslim world. Not yet, and hopefully it will never come. But, we were, but you have to remember the origins of AIDS. Because AIDS comes, you know, even the person who doesn't know why AIDS. You know, and I asked people, for example, in New York and the UK, and I asked people to read it, you know, in the, in the Clifford's Tower. And there is a little tablet there that explains what happened in that, in the little structure on the top of the, of the hill. Over there at the time, 150 Jews were put together in that uh, Clifford's Tower, put together and burned alive. 
and I ask people to read it. British people, normal people, white folks educated. And you have to see how they read it. <laughs> 150 Jews. Uh, yeah, 150 Jews were buried alive. Oh, interesting. I mean, it's like, it's horrible. So you'd never read like that. You'd never make a joke out of it from any other minority. But I find it hard to believe. I'm not going to lie. I find it hard to believe, and I'll tell you why. Because most of the modern world has access to television, to literature, to libraries, to free press. It is so simple to look something up and find out the truth with your own eyes. Like, you have to go out of your first way. Of all, it's not, first of all, it's not everybody. I'm talking about the majority. I'm talking about the trends. So there's nothing, everybody, anything. Okay, so I'll just correct that thing, everybody. I wouldn't say everybody or anything. Yes, the majority is the trend. Oh, it's, uh, that's what it is. I mean, people people thought before the social media, as when the social media will come and everybody would be internet, truth will spread out. And the fact is more lies are spreading out. You know, you say a lie, there's a lie, and the other one says a lie. That's a good point. And it spreads, you know, every lie, you know, comes up 10,000 times over. And that's what happens. So if you say a lie, the other one repeats what you say, and the other one repeats what you say, and the other one repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats. So basically, social media did not do us any favor in discovering more truth. Exactly the opposite. Social media is a very good place for every racist on the planet, every hater on the planet, and everybody repeats what he said. And also, in our day and time, journalism, now the time, because of whatever, maybe because of the internet, because of newspapers hardly ever send journalists to the place to report from the place. You don't see that. I remember I was in, for example, in a, in East Jerusalem, you know, in Silwan, there was a press conference that the Palestinians made over there. You know, it was an elaborate press conference where everybody says they could invite, invited. And they, and then they, they put a beautiful press release so one of a copy of the press release came to me, so I want to see it. I went there, and whatever they say in the press release is not happening in reality. But when I was there, I realized I'm the only journalist. No other journalist came because who wants to go to go like in August was very hot to East Jerusalem to Silwan. I mean, it's not the nicest place in the world. Right? Who wants to do the work? Who wants, who wants to do, to do the, the work? work? It's I'm the only one. And then the next day. I read in, uh, what is this, Deutsche Welle or, you know, or whatever it was, BBC. I read all spill of what happened there, exactly repeating what the, the PR, the press, the press really said, which nothing of it materialized on the ground. I mean, you know how many times I see those things? I see journalists in, sitting in Haifa or in Jaffa, you know, on the beach, in the beautiful, expensive restaurants, and write the reports, and the top of the articles write, Gaza. So you're bringing up something very important. You're bringing up something very important, and that is the press's responsibility, or what people are now calling lethal journalism, where the journalists are purposely either, well, obviously cutting um, footage has always been a practice in journalism from what I understand. But the, the bottom line for the journalist is presenting the situation that is favorable to the Palestinian narrative. Then, you know, because of that, they're painting a picture that, that, a majority of the world is no, believing no, 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 this no, no. is a problem. The question is, well, what starts first, the chicken or the egg? You have to understand, media, by the end of the day, is a business operation. The journalists are going to give you, the editors are going to pick up the journalists who will give you what you want to hear. If people wanted to hear how great and beautiful the Jews are, the, the Western media would be full with that. But the people knows, the, the, you know, the people who 
own papers or own radio station or whatever, they know what the people want. More anti-Semitism. No, so they give it to them. It's not that the media affects the mind of the people. It's exactly the opposite. If the people were against this kind of hate speech against the Jews, the media would have stopped it. But these are the people. This is what they want. You know, I've gone to so many places. You know, it's like when I went to Britain, I didn't even think about writing. I said to myself, okay, how many Jews? There are not even 300,000 Jews in, in, in the whole of Britain, all of the UK. Maybe I'll write two pages about them. And it ended up I wrote too many pages about them. Because everywhere I went, I found anti-Semitism. That's what's troubling here. It's troubling. And the other thing, which is the race, the Jewish racism, you know, the anti-Semitism is so powerful. Part of it is our fault, the Jewish fault. If you really dig deep and you enter and infiltrate some of this organization, you'll find out that the person who is basically stirring the pot, the first one to stir the pot is a Jew. We have so many Jews, so many Jews, self-hating Jews, and it's fighting. I want to show you this. You see this book here? Can the world's, can the whole world be wrong? Yeah, I see this book. He quoted you in this book. He quoted you in this book. I just got it. I was reading it over Shabbos. I'm going to read that section because I want to, uh, you know, go into that subject of the self-hating Jew and how you're saying at the core of so much of the anti-Semitism is a Jewish yeah. problem, um, for lack of better words. So you wrote that you hardly get to meet conviction-driven Jews. Say what I think Jews Farming Jews, if you slap me on one cheek, I'll slap you on both cheek Jews. The Jews I know are neurotic Jews, weak Jews, self-hating Jews, hate-filled narcissist Jews. Except every blame Jews, bowing to all non-Jews, Jews, ever guilt-written Jews, ugly-looking Jews, big-nosed and hunchback Jews, cold Jews, brainy Jews, yapping Jews. And here are both my cheeks and you can slap them both Jews. Yeah. So I think it's safe to say you believe we are part of the problem. But how? We are part of the problem because 2,000 years of the diaspora to run this 2,000 years of being the slaves of everybody or the, the second-class citizen or the, you know, class B or C or D, whatever you were, at the mercy of other nations and have been surrounded by anti-Semitism from the beginning. And uh, some of, some of, some of it, it drops off. If, I, if, you know, if you have people, let's say, you know, 100 people, and everybody tells you you are ugly and stupid, most people, if that happens to them, will, by the end of the day, believe that they are ugly and stupid. Maybe not you, maybe not me, but in general, the human nature, if everybody around you says that you're so bad, you know, at least some of us, you know, are doomed to believe it. I've said this on the show. I find myself uh, being triggered <laughs> by Hasidic Jews when I'm traveling around Israel because of all the terrible things that people say about them following the New York Times articles and I read the comments over there. It starts to slant the way I perceive the Jews myself. What start, What came first, the chicken or the it's egg? It's together. It's together. I mean, it started with, with religion. It started with the Christianity, with the Jews not following Jesus. This is what I can tell you. This is at least the anti-Semitism. Right. It's not the anti-Semitism in the days of Esther. You know, it's not that. In the days of the Bible, you know, there were tribes fighting tribes. You know, so one tribe brought more about his enemies than the other enemies. But every tribe was fighting another tribe. Every tribe was killing another tribe. We are talking about the normal world, more or less the world we know from the time that Rome became the empire, and then they accepted Christianity as a faith. And then you see, what's the story? I mean, it's like the Spanish Inquisition. I don't have to tell you, the Crusaders. It's a, it's a history. It's, it's, that's the history. And, and that, those countries have been controlling the world for, for too long. 
and they spread this kind of culture. And, and if you read the culture, I mean, you read, I mean, it's like Shakespeare, for example. I mean, you know, I don't have to tell you that. You know, I mean, the Merchant of Venice, you know, or, or what I mentioned before, you know, it's like the Canterbury Tales and thousands of other books and articles presenting the Jews as the, the worst of the worst. That was the culture, and that is still the culture. And some of the Jews, that's what it is. I mean, there's nothing you can do. I mean, I mean, we still a us, even if you look at present day, you know, what happens in Israel today, you know, the fight between right and left, between religious and secular, and you see all these things, you know, what happened in the Knesset today, the way they talk to each other. It's sad to watch the, the hatred that we have between ourselves, as if we finally got the land, we got Israel, we are made Israel so beautiful, an amazing, beautiful country. And 75 years, we have never been free. Jewish country for 75 years. Now we got 75 years. Okay, let's destroy everything. We do have a problem and we have to admit it. We cannot always point a finger at others. We have to sometimes point a finger at ourselves. We are part of the blame. We are part, I mean, it's like Noam Chomsky, Chomsky, whatever you say it in English. I mean, what is he? Judith Butler, I mean, some of the biggest anti-Israel and the biggest BDS are Jews. I mean, that's what it is. When you read articles, you know, and you compare, for example, the British Guardian to the American New York Times, you start thinking that the New York Times is, is published in, a, in, the, in, 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 a, in Itzar, in the settlement of Itzar, which is one of the most extreme, so to speak, you know, of the Israeli settlements. Because in comparison, the Times is very poisonous. You read The Guardian, it's amazingly anti-Israel, amazingly. And sometimes, out of habits, when I read the most, most poisonous article against Israel, I stop and I go to the byline. Who wrote that? I always do what? that. A Jew. Or an Arab. Usually a Jew. With so much hatred, it's usually a Jew, not an Arab. And we have a problem. Like conservative Jews in America, for example, or conservative Jews in Israel, who fight anti-Semitism or hate of the Jew by the Muslim, but they refuse to join the fight against the Europeans. Because did you say, okay, the anti-Jew does not look like me? We have a problem of saying that the biggest anti-Semite is a person who looks like us. So it's better to blame it on the Muslims. You know, I'm not saying the Muslims love Jews, but go even to Palestinians the Christian Palestinians and the Muslim Palestinians. Who hates the Jews more? 10 times stronger the Christian Palestinians. That's a reality. And if you go to the place, forget what you see in the media, forget the papers from A to Z, right, left, or media, or center. Forget the social media, just go. Go to Ramallah, go to Jenin, go to Nablus, go to those places, live with the people. Hear and listen. What am I going to hear? The Christians hate the Jews much more than the Muslims. I don't care who hates me. I care who kills me. My children live here. If it's Look. the Palestinians that are killing them, that's where I'm going to put my attention. Look, there's always somebody that there's always somebody that hates more and kills less and kills more and hates more. This Look. is this Look. the way it is. This no, is our current enemy fight, right now. The Muslims right here in Israel. Okay, who gives who teaches the Muslims to hate Jews here? Who teaches them? Number one, it's completely part of their curriculum. And yes, The Elders of Zion is the number one selling book. You always, you always have to go to the root. You go to Jordan, to Amman. Go over the same books, the bookstores, not many. Go to the newsstands. 
They sell anti-Semitic trash. Who wrote that anti-Semitic trash? Because the Muslims are because the Muslims were illiterate and the Christians were writing and they were printing before the Muslims. The Muslims were in the desert, so so the Christians gave them the curriculum. The hatred is the same. No, no, one second. The hatred is the same. Anyone who's seen footage coming out of any terrorist attack, the most disgusting ones, the most vicious ones, the Palestinians are positively gleeful. The Arabs, I don't like calling them Palestinians. The Arabs are gleeful. They they dance in the blood of Jews in the most disgusting, despicable ways. Hanale, How could you Hanale, say that their hatred Hanale, is not? Hanale. Yeah. I am the grandson. I'm the son of Holocaust survivors, the grandson of people. As am I. Just a second, just a second. 90% of my family died before I was born. Now, can anybody compare? What do Europeans did to us, to the oars that we get by the Muslims? No. The, because the, because the Europeans were more efficient and the Muslims are a bunch of dumb. No, 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 no. It's, it's not like that. It's not like that. It's because the hatred there is much stronger. You have to remember, here in Israel, the fight is by the end of the day also about land. Not just about theology and ideology. A tiny, <laughs> tiny piece no, 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 of land. No, no, no. It's not even about land. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's a tiny piece of land, but it's quite about land. You know, for a Palestinian, may we have it. One thing in the Palestinians is so amazing. If a Palestinian lives, and no matter where, in a, in a village somewhere, he has a little house. He makes money. What does he do? He fixes the house. He makes more money. It puts in a, a nice fence, makes more money, puts another floor, more money, another floor, another floor, another floor. It doesn't leave the land. Do we have that love of land? Do we Jews have that? No. I do. I do. You and I maybe, but I'm talking in general. Do we have that love of land? Well, no. think about the amount of Jews that are living here in Israel, making Aliyah from all around the I'm world, because they feel. One second, Jerusalem. despite but despite what's going on here, people uh, uh, laugh at me that that uh, that I say Israel is the safest place in the world. They say, "Are you kidding? Are you, you must have to be insane to okay. live there." I'm, 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 I love I'm the land. With you about that. I'm just saying, you know, we have to remember that the Muslim world we have a different fight than with the Christian world. We just have to remember that. I I think it is a different fight. I do think it's a different fight. I. I disagree, however, that the root of anti-Semitism is us and our behavior. First of all, what, what did I do wrong? Did I do something wrong? When I say us, it's lachem you know, you, you know, you know the, the, the Agoda from Pesach. I don't have to teach you that. When I say us, I say the Jewish people, not you or, or me. Obviously, we fight it. Well, not me specifically. No, but, but, but yes, yes. Many places, the leaders of the movements, the BDS movements, many of the leaders of the BDS movement are Jews, and we have to recognize this. We have to recognize this and we have to fight ignoring this. Many of the leaders of the BDS, many of the writers in the Western world were strongly BDS and strongly anti-Israel and pro-Palestinians are Jews. We have to remember that. I went for the make, for the, make the book about America. You know, the, the, I wrote also a book about America. I went with my wife, Izzy, went to travel in America for many, many months. When he also covered the Jewish world in that. So he went from temple to temple you know, Haredi temples, one thing, and, and temples, American temples, and you go in Yom Kippur, you know, or holidays, you go to temple, to reform, or conservative temple, mostly reform temples, and, and the rabbi makes a speech. He or she, what are they talking about? About the blood that saturates the land, the Palestinian blood that saturates the land in the hands of the Jews and the Israelis. They talk about the Israelis as terrible, 
warmongers. This is in the temples. You go to Yom Kippur and they make Kaddish. Not on the dead Jews, but on dead Palestinians in Gaza. Who happen to be terrorists who try to kill Jews. Who is doing that? Christians, Muslim, we Jews. And I include us because I'm, I'm not going to deny it. They, we are part of the same mishpuchen. This is us. They don't identify as Jews. These are not halachic Jews. These are not people who they care about... Identify the, as Jews. They identify as Jews. They have a temple. I've seen people on Twitter identify as Jews and tell me that they're Jewish because their husband's Ashkenazi and they converted through no, reform and therefore they're the, Jewish. Kind of the, I, I, I'm, you're talking about Kenneth Roth and Peter Beinhardt and I, I know exactly who you're talking no, about. But, but you're talking about temples. I'm talking about temples, going to service, young people service. Because the reform movement is a social justice movement at this point. ADL, you know, Anti-Defamation League, at its time, was mainly anti-defamation, but Jewish organization, a little bit about human rights. Today, what is ADL? ADL, this, this is American Judaism, I'm sorry. ADL today is very little about Judaism, and mostly about every other kvetch and every other meshigas. That's the reality. Because Jews want... Funded by Jews Jews to the tunes of millions upon millions. And what do we do? Instead of supporting Jews, instead of supporting your brother and sister, you support all kinds of Meshuggahim. That's the reality of American Judaism. Because Jews believe that through Tikkun Olam, through social justice, then when the time comes, they will stand aside us. But that actually never happens. Hanalei, you're giving credit and credit to Jews. They don't even think like that. I mean, they all think of Tikkun Olam. When I was your age and you look like a very young lady... You know, the word the Kunulam, everybody, nobody talks about this word Kunulam. This is like, a, even though in Kabbalah it exists for God knows how long, in, in the general world, the Kunulam, I mean, it's like nobody knew about it. Some sugar came up, came up and said the Kunulam is applying to whatever, to Ramallah. Yeah, yeah. And to, 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 mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. some other, some, some progressive movement has become the Kunulam. Now, this is Mishigas, and we Jews are part of it. I don't want to elaborate on this. I just, it's just a point. That's a remark that we made. Of course, the blame for anti-Semitism is not just on Jews, of course not. This is just a little bit. I mean, this is just part of it. You know, and they'll say that it's because of the Hasidim. They'll say it's because of the Hasidim. I'm not justifying anti-Semitism, God forbid, of course not. I'm just saying that we have to recognize also that also we have a problem and we have to deal with it. That's Absolutely. Right. And I have I've read extensively on the pathology of self-hating Jews. And uh, just today, Kenneth Roth tweeted something so damaging. I, I, it's almost, it's cruel. It's absolutely cruel. It's hard, hard to really translate it any other way. But at the same time, they'll say that, you know, Israel is, is imploding right now thanks to a right-wing government and that, you know, we give the we give bait to the to the Jew haters. So, you know, it's a lot of finger pointing and it's hard to say exactly. I mean, this, where... this, this government you're talking about is only like, what, two months old, three months old, whatever it is. This is not a story of, you know, criticism against Jews and BDS. BDS is going for a long, long time. This mm-hmm. government, you might like it, you might not like it, but nobody's doing because of this government because it is a new creature. This was just born. Just said it is it's Brit Mila. It's Brit Mila. You know, it's like I don't, I don't, and nobody knows how long it will stick around and how long it will stay. I mean, the the state of Israel is now totally polarized, you know, because of this government or because action of this government is taken. If you are for the action or against the action, but the the the, the country is totally polarized. I mean, I am now at the moment in Tel Aviv, and and to see, uh, to see the one thing that I, f- I feel very very strange. I've never been in Tel Aviv. And seeing the things that I see now, people are going on Rothschild, you know, on Rothschild Boulevard, and you know, the yeah, Israeli exactly. flag. I've never known so many Tel Avivians, you know, who, 
who are so yeah. patriotic you all know, of a sudden. Like, Israeli flag was so much brighter. I, it's like it's like it's like I've never seen it before. It's like of course it's because of the demonstration, but it's a sight that you wouldn't expect, you know, on on, on Rothschild, you know. But now you see it in Shenkin. I mean, it's like you have Israelis going with the flag. They go to the demonstration, of course, but but this is the irony. No, yeah, but that's what it is. But this is something else. This is not the new government. Is a new government, you know, for better or worse, whatever it is. This is not a cause for BDS. BDS has been even when Bennett was the prime minister. I mean, BDS, and and of course, many many years before that. No, I'm not blaming it. I'm not blaming it on the government specifically. I'm just saying that a lot of people will suggest that anti-Semitism is because of this group, and it's because of that group, and it's because of this guy's mistake, and because of that guy's saying, mistake. Anti-Semitism started before these groups came came in. Right. In, indeed. Okay. Let Let's get to your your sixth book now. You came back to Israel. You moved into Meisharm for what? Five months was it? Over a year. Oh, over a year. I don't know why I thought l- less than that. You moved into Meisharm for over a year. So, but but, but this brings there. me back to my first question. Yeah. This brings me back to my first question, which you didn't answer, and I'm going to still hold your feet to the fire. Okay, please um, do. You came back. Okay, so you, you you came home, which is almost you know fairy. It's like a fairy tale. Tovia Tenemam came back to. Eretz Israel to his homeland, to his people, to his neighborhood, and settled in. So let me ask you. Let me ask you the question in its entirety, and then you can unpack and and share what you'd like. As somebody who grew up in a, in a from home, you're a very intelligent man. Clearly, thank um, you. Know, from what I, from what I garner, you're, so what part of the experience coming back to your neighborhood, to your people, validated your connection with Jews and Yiddishkeit for you? And what parts? you think are just still never going to work for Tovia Tenenbaum? Look, it's not validated or not validated. I mean, of course, uh, before I came here, everybody, before I came to Meoshorim, everybody told me not to come. No one said, go there. Uh, everybody I talked to from Israel, including religious Jews, told me don't go there because if you go to Meoshorim, the first evening, you know, the Hasidim or whatever, the Haredim, which then, you know, outside the place where you are, outside your home, and they'll throw stones at you and they'll scream, it's going there always, you know, you know, infidel get out or something like that. I mean, this this is what I expected because this is the Israelis and the religious Israelis. Some of them are orthodox, some of them are even ultra orthodox. You know, who don't live there. This is what he said to me. So of course. Well, just to explain to people listening, you don't, you can't move into that neighborhood unless you are from that neighborhood. You can't just rent an apartment on on Craigslist or online. Yeah, it doesn't live online. If you want to rent an apartment, you have to build there, and then you see some tzedalach, you know, some paper, you know, on poles or whatever. Right. So it's not not so welcoming to outsiders. But I found that there is a little hotel called Modern Svania, Svania Hotel, and it's right in the... Next to Kikara Shabbat, it's, it's, it's a little hotel that was uh, funded like 100 years ago. And so I tried. I said, okay, I'll go there for two weeks and see what happens. And someone already moved at me. And I extended uh, for over a year, obviously. Stayed there with my wife. And, and not only did he throw stones, nobody even dreamt of throwing stones. Exactly the opposite. They welcomed me. They welcomed us. You know, he went for Shabbos, you know. So that Shabbat, you know, here and there, evening and afternoon, and they came to visit us, we went to visit them. It was like an amazing, amazing experience. I was embraced by the people. It's a small neighborhood. What did you do there it's for a year? There are tens of thousands of people. I mean, you know, talking Meashari, I'm talking Kerem. I know, but I'm saying compared to Germany and compared to, to the UK and compared to but America. Of course, we didn't stay only there. I mean, this was the base. Meashari was the base, so, you know. You know, so sometimes during the day I would spend in Neymar. We stayed also one month in Neymar also. 
But during the day, you'd go to many places. So you go to, to Hasidic courts, you know, you go to the Rabarlach, you go to the Shemir Munim, you go to the Preslev, you, you go to, to the Lalever, you go to the Satmaras, you go to the Dushinsky. You go to, there are so many Hasidic groups over there, so many Shtiblach and so many whatever, you know, Gur is next to us over there, and Bells is not far. You know, just walking distance from Svania, you know, that's Svania, corner of Yecheskel, you know, over there, you can Shabbat. So, yeah, sure. So, uh, and, and of course, went to the Yeshivas, went to Konevich, went to Hebron, went to Wolfson, went to Mir. I mean, it's like, it, there are 1.3 million Haredim in Israel. You have to understand. So, of course, we travel, sometimes travel to Bechemesh, sometimes did. You know, during the day, in and air, here and there, going here and going there, and, and you know, sometimes joining. I didn't run into you once, and I'm out all the time. Now I'm disappointed. <laughs> sometimes going with, the, with, with them when they go to the Tune of Forever. Somewhere, either in Sfas, in Sfat, or so you or immerse in, yourself in, in, in the day. Immerse myself, yeah, going to teachers. You know, it's like I mean, it's very, it's a very bit. If you live in the it's a full time job. I'm well aware. It's always what to do. It's like you finish this, you come to this, you finish this, and the teachers starts in 11, 12 o'clock in the evening. I mean, it's like. But it must have been so awkward and uncomfortable for you. Like this is not your life anymore. You don't. You, you, you're comfortable there because it's familiar, but at the same time, you reject so many of their principles. Look, and so many when I came, the first day I came, what, what, I didn't know how to call myself. I didn't know how to introduce myself. So I entered my wife on the streets in the Meshorim and I went to the shuk, to the market over there. And in the first half hours, five people approached me. Tuvia was all of a sudden I realized that this supposedly kitsunim, extremist, canoeim, whatever you want to call them, they actually read books. Not just the not just the Gmora, not just the Tamil, not just Sifi Hasidus, they read even my books. And they can quote me what page and what line in the books say this or that. I cannot do that. I order books cannot do that. So it's just amazing. So you see. Well, they don't sell your books in the Judaica store, but they, okay, they this, apparently yeah. seeked out your I, literature. I, out. I mean, it's like in Ponovich, you told me they took the first time you did catch the Jew and they tore it into two pieces. I mean, the two halves are separate in two halves. And so it's catch the Jew Halef and catch the Jew base. So they can spread it around. So, so they can cheer. I mean, it's like, this is what you do. It's like amazing. I mean, it's like, yeah, sometimes I had to go on the street. So did they ask you what you yeah. were doing there? And I told them. I came here to write a book about the Haredi world. Say, okay, welcome. And nobody tried to convince me to be tzaddik or to be this, or to make me kaya mitzvah, or to do this, or to do that. Nobody tried, nobody tried. Any missionary walks, you open the doors, and you're... You know, hospitality, like unbelievable. And, and they shared the most intimate parts of life, the most intimate stories with me. And it was amazing to see how the people, how open they were. Uh, and yes, I fell in love with them. Not with all of them. There are some Hasidic that are very critical, like the Gur Hasidic, the girls, I'm very, very critical of the Rebbe, the Yankee Alter, the Big Gur, you know, I'm very, very critical. I saw horrible things there. So, and I write it. I'm Amazonic. It's, it's not, it's not a, but in other Hasidic, especially Hasidic, like told the sound, the Abaralach, it's amazing. They have an amazing Rebbe. And it's, it's like, as you accept everybody, as welcome everybody, it doesn't matter if you're religious or not religious, whatever you are, you're always welcome. I mean, it's like amazing. It's like amazing. Did you think for yourself, I could have lived this life? This could have been me? Of course. I still say that. 
it's good. And what about your wife? Yeah, she also, she also, she also enjoys it very much. She, she's European, so she's also familiar with this kind of lifestyle, you know, from back there, you know, from, from the European and she was a girl. I feel like it all comes full circle. Like you left and then you went out and you traveled and you saw and you were not happy with what you saw and they rejected you and then you came back home and you were welcome and loved <laughs> for who you are. Look, Annalie, don't look, Annalie, listen to me. When I left the Haredi world, I left the Haredi world because I couldn't ask questions and I couldn't do whatever I wanted to do. Well, now you can ask more questions than you used to be just able a second, to. Just, just a second. It's like I couldn't even look at a woman, you know, in, in my time. It was forbidden. Now I'm living in New York City in the Upper East Side. Over there, you cannot look at women anymore. Because if you look at women under, under the chin... <laughs> You'll get arrested. You're, 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 you're a rapist, a potential rapist. I mean, you cannot say he, you cannot say she. You have to say they. Yeah. You, have, you have to believe that everybody is it's a... It's just family. a minefield. It's just a minefield. So when I come from Upper East Side to me, I'm sure, I, all of a sudden I feel free. Right. You can relax. Anyway, I feel free. I go to Hasid Sharid and I say to him, you know what? I'm going to Shabbos, Leil Shabbos, I went on the street, I went in Mir Shor, and I look at the street, and I look at the women, they are so beautiful, one under, after the other, I can't let my eyes off them. And what does the Haredi Jew says to me? Not shut up, how can you do that? He says to me, you know what? Chesed also, it's has made for us such a good, after the Holocaust, he turned all our wives to beautiful ladies. <laughs> That's generous. <laughs> That's generous. <laughs> but I'm saying this kind of talk. There's a sincerity. You know, there's, a sim- there's a sincerity. Yeah. And it's much more open talk about this kind of issues, even about the intimate issues, you know, in the, in the radio world, that than in the free, progressive, so to speak, world, the way they call themselves progressive. I think it's a good Where they're so thing. censored but, and filtered, ironically. Yeah, yeah, That's a very exactly. good point. That's a very good point. That's really, really interesting. Um, your book is out yet? The book is out in in in, in uh, Hebrew. It is out. The book is it's out in out. Hebrew. Selling in Israel. Yeah, it just came out last week in Hebrew in Israel, and it's called Haredi Betovlo. I love that. That is fantastic. It, it's interesting because I I hesitated to have you on my podcast because I speak very wow. because I speak speak very strongly about my values and my hashkafos and mm-hmm. what's important to me and and I try to toe the line between being open-minded and accepting of people but also being a woman who's you know grew up learning about the letter of the law and the importance of following the Torah the way it's written. Yeah. So when I'm reading your books, I, I, I love them. I eat them up. But my hesitation was that if, let's say, I recommended it to my audience and they picked up a copy, they would read the things about you that I was concerned about or that I was disappointed with, let's just say. Now, I, I'm not saying that, you know, there's the the adage, we all sin differently. So I'm not saying that I'm here to judge you, Hasbashalam. But for me now, it actually makes sense that you put those things in your books because in this sixth book, it'll all, you know, feed into the story of how you are back with the from people again and, and kind of coming back and facing your, your heritage and your religion in that way. Cause there's no not kosher restaurants in Gula or Meisharim, And I imagine that's not in the book this time. <laughs> yeah. How could it be? <laughs> so that's why I didn't want to have you. There's no kosher restaurants right there in Meisharim called Deitch. <laughs> But but I but I but I I I really have enjoyed reading your books and listening to the audio book as well. Yeah, but but, but I can say one thing: if you agree with everything I said, every, everything I, don't, I agree with everything you said. But we need it. more time. Yeah. Then you are not going to be Jewish. And I'm not going to be Jewish. Exactly. Of 
we have to disagree on something, otherwise life is very boring. No? It's going to be like the progressive, we agree with everybody. <laughs> everything. It's, it's, it's like really boring. Well, your books are far from boring. You are far from boring. Yeah, and I r- really enjoy getting to know you through your journeys, through your adventures. I wish you, wish you much hatzlacha with the new book. I look forward to reading it myself. Yeah. Regards to your wife. Thank you for being on the show. And I, listen, I'm going to keep my I'm going to keep my eyes peeled until I bump into you. We're going to get that selfie. Okay. Merit Hashem. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. So there you have it. Episode 98 of the Weekly Squeeze. If you enjoyed, please consider donating to Mayor Panim. The link is in my show notes. Don't forget to use the promo code SQUEEZE10 when you're purchasing Tovito. And let your friends know that the Weekly Squeeze is where it's at. Two more episodes until the end of Season 1. That's right. Next week, Monday and Thursday. I'll see you on Monday.